Morning, Wheaton Bible Church. Uh, no, 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 that wasn't nearly robust enough. This is a, a worship service is a celebration. Let's do this again. Good morning, Wheaton Bible Church. Morning. Whoa, whoa, yes, way to go. Now, I have a cold. You, that'll become more clear as I go. Actually, I sound a little better than I did in the last service. The good news is I'm feeling better than I did a couple of days ago. The bad news is you have to listen to me. Do not leave. Stay parked in your chair. God, the Holy Spirit, I happen to believe wants to speak to us in a potent, dramatic way this morning through his word. Today we are returning to our series on Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. It's a great segue or, or follow-up to our missions fest last week. That'll become clearer as we go. And we are in this series on Mark looking at Jesus because I want you to know Jesus. Man, I want you to love Jesus. I want you to live for Jesus. I want you to follow Jesus. As Jesus says in chapter 1, the Gospel of Mark, verse 17, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Men, women, students, children. So what does it mean to love Jesus? What does it mean to live for Jesus? It means we follow and we fish. Not an either or, but a both and. We follow and we fish. But God knows how countercultural, counterintuitive that is. God knows how difficult to practice, how difficult it is to pull that off. Uh, God knows how difficult it is to follow and to fish. And God knows that it's totally a function of our vision of Jesus, our, our belief in Jesus, our understanding of Jesus. So God has given you Mark so you will know who Jesus is. So grab a Bible, turn in your Bibles. There's Bibles in front of you. Turn on your Bibles to Mark chapter 2 and verse 13. This morning we're looking at two accounts, not just one, but two accounts. Each of them are five verses long. Each of them revolve around a question, and each of them result in an incredible description of how extraordinary, how revolutionary, how countercultural Jesus Christ really is. And I can't wait for you to see what we have here. So we're going to start with the first. It's in verse 13. And we're going to read verses 13 through 17. And frankly, we'll spend most of our time on this first account. So follow with me. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, that's strange. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now, let me stop here for a second. In verse 15, notice sinners in many of your translations is in quotes because it's a reference to a class, a type, a, a category of people who publicly rejected what they believed to be the constraints of the Old Testament, didn't want anything to do with God's Word. And they lived however they wished. They were the, the, the partiers, the bingers. 
as street walkers, and, and, and on and on. Frankly, it's exactly how I was before I met Jesus Christ. Now, let's continue verse 16. When the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees, saw him, that is, Jesus, eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So let's go back to the beginning. In the first verse, verse 13 of this account, Jesus is moving along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he is teaching. Teaching was a big deal to Jesus. Teaching was central to the ministry of Jesus. The teaching of God's Word, like we're doing right now, is something we must all take seriously. Big deal for Jesus Christ. Now, in the next verse, verse 17, Jesus calls Levi. This is election. Notice the initiative rests with Jesus. Jesus chooses Levi. Levi doesn't pick Jesus. Now, you know Levi by his other name, Matthew. He was one of the 12 disciples. He will become one of the 12 disciples. He will become the author of the gospel that bears his name, Matthew. And in the first century, it is not uncommon for people to have two names. So uh, Mark was John Mark. Thomas was Didymus. Simon was Peter. Levi is Matthew. And when we go to the parallel account in the Gospel of Matthew, written by this Levi, this Matthew, he refers to himself as Matthew. But the stunner here, I mean, the revolutionary radical thing here is that Levi, Matthew, was a despicable tax collector. Tax collectors in the first century were about as highly regarded as drug dealers today. Or, or men who oversee engage in sex trafficking and slavery in different developing countries around the world. They were Jews who collaborated with the Roman government to extort their fellow Jews by collecting taxes, all sorts of things, and always skimming, inflating prices so they could skim off the top for themselves. They were considered traitors to Israel, Jewish traitors to the motherland. They were banned. Tax collectors were banned from the synagogue. And the rabbis in the first century and prior to the first century used to teach that there was one group it was okay for the average Jew to lie to, and that was the tax collector. They were hated. So when Jesus picks Levi to be a disciple and allows this social and uh, spiritual offense to metastasize by eating with other tax collectors and, and sinners indicating that Levi, the choosing of Levi, wasn't an exception. It was going to become the norm because eating in the ancient Near East was to align with, was to endorse, was to express approval and solidarity with. When Jesus chooses Levi and eats in Levi's home with all these other tax collectors and sinners, Jesus is doing something crazy. Jesus is doing something unimaginable, something countercultural. Nobody picked 
Levi. Nobody. Uh, uh, Levi was as much a first century outcast as a first century prostitute or a leper. But, but it was worse in the sense that Levi wasn't oppressed. He was an oppressor. Heinous. Despicable. Despised. And nobody saw this coming. One of the reasons I came to Christ reading this gospel, the gospel of Mark, one of the reasons I believe in Jesus so deeply is nobody can make this kind of stuff up. Certainly not these Jews. The moment Jesus calls Levi, goes to his house and eats. You know what is going on? Everybody in Israel is pulling out their iPhones. We got to get a picture of this. Would you look at that? Scandal. And, and so they're, they're, they're tweeting, they're Instagramming, they're Snapchatting. They're horrified by this. This was a scandal. It was a scandal of grace. So when we come to verse 16, and the Pharisees ask this question, it really isn't that surprising. Sad, but not surprising. And their question is, why is Jesus eating with these types? These people are they're antithetical to everything we as a nation stand for. And I want you to understand this question in verse 16 isn't the innocent question of, say, a, a, a child. Mommy, why is that guy eating with these people? This is a, a question brimming with hostility and condemnation and, and self-righteousness. Luke tells us in his account, same account, that the Pharisees were complaining. Why is he doing this? What in the world is he doing? Now look at the next verse, verse 17, where Jesus explains why. Let's put it up here on the overhead. I, I just want you to see this. This is one of the most memorable and missional statements in the gospel. Jesus says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Sinners. What in the world? Now, my wife, Rhonda, is a pediatrician. And she's been on call all weekend. I've been sick all weekend. She's been on a call all weekend. We've had a lot of fun this weekend. Now, you know what I've observed when she's on call? She's got a lot of calls this weekend. Is that the moms or dads that call her aren't calling her because their kids are healthy. They're calling her because their kids are sick. Little so-and-so has a high fever. It's just spiked. And they're really worried. Oh, or there's a rash. Or they're trying to figure out, do, do we need to go to the emergency room? What do we need to do in this case? Or, or sometimes it's something like, well, you know, a, a little Johnny just swallowed a toad and six worms. He's turning blue. What do I do? 
And I say this because I want you to understand something, and, and it's not obvious here, but it's right under the surface. The difference between Levi and the Pharisees isn't that the Levi was sick and the Levi was a sinner and, and the Pharisees weren't. It's that Levi apparently had an innate sense that he was innate sense that he was sick, that he was somehow out of sorts with the living God because of what he had did, because of the career he had chosen, because of the life he had lived, and the Pharisees blinded by their own self-righteousness had no sense at all of their standing, their sinful standing before God. Jesus' statement in verse 17, this critical, potent statement, assumes this. And the contrast here will not make any sense for you unless you understand as wealthy as Levi was, and he was wealthy, he knew at the core of his being that he was broken, that he needed help, that he was sick, and that's why he responds to Jesus' call. And the self-righteous, arrogant, spiritually smug Pharisees convinced that they had it all together, convinced that they could merit approval based on what they did or didn't do, um, that they were special before God, reject Jesus, condemn Jesus, criticize Jesus. And so Jesus, pointing this out, says in verse 17, you know, it's not the healthy that call the doctor on call. It's the sick. And by the way, let me just clarify for you. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, people who know they're sinners. Now, that's the story. Do you see the point? Do you see why Mark has included this in the gospel? Do you see what's going on here? Mark is telling us that Jesus is extraordinary because he loves sinners. He offers crazy grace to those you and I despise the most. He has come, he is telling us, to rescue the vile, the hated, the ignored, the rejected, the outcast, the sinner. You do not make this up. You just can't. If you and I were God, you know what we would have done? We would have sent a terminator to take people, care of people like Levi. Uh, to take care of people we hate. And the truth is that's often what we wish God would do. God, would you zap the Democrats? Would you zap the Republicans? Yeah, that's just the way we are. But God didn't send a terminator. He sent a savior. And here in calling Levi to be one of the 12, the closest of the close, and eating with Levi and, and his fellow tax gatherers and other sinners, 
and explaining it all by, by saying that just as a doctor uh, exists for the sick, so I have come to call sinners. I want to say to you, we have one of the most vivid, one of the most dramatic pictures of divine grace, crazy grace, crazy love, crazy compassion, crazy mercy in the Gospels. Amazing. Three observations. This crazy divine grace is accepting grace. Do you want to know how Jesus feels about you and your sin? Do you want to know how Jesus feels about that person you can't stand and her sin? He tells you in verse 17. Well, I'm not on call for the healthy, but for the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but that person you despise. I've come to call you. You see, Jesus Christ doesn't just love populations. He loves People. He loves individuals. They have names. They have addresses. They live in condos or houses, sometimes on the street, in homes. And Jesus here demonstrates how very accepting he is. And Jesus Christ accepts you right now the way you are. The calling of Levi here means that even though you may carry tremendous guilt and baggage, even though you may feel like you are never good enough before the living God, good enough before others, um, the calling of Levi means that maybe you're a person that's plagued with doubts or fear or anxiety, and it bothers you, and you can't seem to get beyond it. Or maybe you struggle with a secret sin and addiction. Nobody knows. But it's part of your story and your struggle. Or maybe you come from a, a, a terrible family or you're in a terrible family situation right now. Or, or maybe you feel like somebody who recently told me, I mean in the last couple of days, man, if I don't get some help, I'm going to hurt myself because the pain is so great. Or maybe you think terrible things, you say terrible things, you do and have done terrible things, and maybe you can't pray, maybe you can't sit still, maybe you text while you drive. You don't recycle. And you have tattoos. Maybe on and on and on. And I have good news for you from God's Word this morning. Jesus, this Jesus, loves you, welcomes you, accepts you, and he invites you to follow him. And you are more than welcome here at Wheaton Bible Church. More than welcome. Because every single one of us, starting with me, is a Levi. Every single one of us. Uh, maybe we need a banner outside 
outside the atrium that says, sinners welcome, eat for free. (laughs) And then underneath, we say tattoos, needle marks, purple hair, whatever, welcome. Crazy grace is accepting grace. It's Jesus. A second observation I want to make is this crazy grace, this divine grace is transforming grace. Jesus not only accepts Levi, he transforms Levi. Levi will, Matthew will become the author of the gospel. In other words, grace isn't soft on sin. It forgives it. Here, Jesus, interestingly enough, calls sin, sin. He calls these people sinners. So grace isn't soft on sin. Rather, grace transforms sinners into Christ followers. Jesus Christ will die on the cross not only to forgive sin, but to transform sinners, to change us from what we were to what he wants us to be. Divine grace never, ever allows us to wallow in our sin, to wallow in our addiction, to continue to self-destruct because grace unzips us. It gets inside us and it empowers us to want to do the things of God that we would never want to do on our own. So this grace is accepting, this grace is transforming. And third, I want you to see this grace here in these five verses is clarifying. That is, it clarifies your mission, our mission, my mission. And what do I mean? Well, I mean, think about it. Jesus loves sinners. What are we supposed to do? Love sinners. Jesus goes to sinners. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to go to the hated, the despised, the people that rub us the wrong way, the people that we can't stand, the people that we have categorized, the people we tend to ignore. Jesus goes to sinners. We go to sinners. Jesus comes in the world here as a missionary. Verse 17 is a mission statement. Leaving the culture of heaven, heaven, coming to the culture of earth, leaving the presence of angels, coming into the presence of sinners. And here Jesus is not legitimizing sin. He's not winking at it. He's not endorsing it. He will die in our place for our sin. He is loving sinners to redeem them, to reconcile them with God, to rescue them, to forgive them, to cleanse them, to transform us for eternity. And men and women, you students, verse 17 is your mission statement. It's a mission statement of Wheaton Bible Church. Jesus has called you, uh, appointed you, uh, chosen you to go and to invite the hopeless, the helpless, the rejected, the, 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 the broken, the refugee, the immigrant, documented, undocumented, the attic. The dealer, the liar, the lunatic. 
Jesus has called you. You breathe. He gives you your breath so that you might go and invite them to Jesus so that you might share your story of what Jesus has done in your life so you might share the gospel story of what Jesus has done for us on the cross and you might invite them to respond to him. You and I, Wheaton Bible Church, we do not exist for ourselves. We exist for those who are not here yet, for those who do not know Jesus yet. And by the way, parenthetically, this is why we are aggressively going after the My Hope video, this Billy Graham video next month as we move into November. It's why we're so encouraged that several hundred of you have signed up to show videos in different venues and invite non-Christians into that. In a couple of hours, I'm going to Indiana. And I'm taking a My Hope video, and I hope I can show it or leave it with the people I'll be with. It's why we exist. All right. That's the first account. Are you with me? My voice is a little funky. Can I go on? I mean, we could stop here, but this is really good stuff, right? We've got a few more minutes. Okay, here we go. Let's go begin in verse 18, and let's look at this second account, this five-verse account. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting? But yours, <laughs> now, they're not that religious. Jesus answered, how can the guests of a bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Now, real quickly, before I go on and we read the last paragraph, let me mention two things. Look at verse, um, uh, verse 19 and then in verse 20. Notice Jesus is comparing himself to a bridegroom, to the groom. But what I want you to know In light of the Old Testament, in doing so, Jesus is claiming to be God. This is an indirect claim to be God because in the Old Testament, God claims to be the bridegroom of Israel. And Jesus picks that up as if no big deal. I'm the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom of Israel. I'm the bridegroom of humanity. And then in verse 20, now look at verse 20. Jesus demonstrates his deity. He reveals it by obliquely predicting his death. When the bridegroom is taken away, that's a reference to Jesus' crucifixion. And it reveals that Jesus is orchestrating his own death. Jesus is in complete control. It reveals his deity. Let's continue reading verse 21. Here we have two parables. No one sews a patch of untrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will tear away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Now, I know this is a church, and we're not supposed to talk about wine, but we are here. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Now, Jesus is not against fasting. He's against the Pharisees' version of fasting, where they took a tool and made it a weapon. That's what religious people do. They take God-given tools and they make them weapons. 
In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus fasts for 40 days prior to the temptation in the wilderness of, of Satan. Jesus isn't against fasting. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, Jesus explains or unpacks this by using this illustration of a groom, a bridegroom. And we need to understand something relative to the culture in first century Israel. The bride and the groom did not leave and go away for a honeymoon. Instead, they stayed and they hosted what amounted to usually a week-long celebration, a wedding festival. And it was a daily feast. It was a daily celebration. It was a daily party. And in first century Israel, which was full of hardworking Jews, this week-long event was one of the highlights of the year. All your friends, all your family, the community is there. Bridegrooms, therefore, would never ask their guests to fast or to mourn. And often, mourning is associated with fasting. And so, in a parallel passage in one of the Gospels, uh, it says, uh, fast and mourn. A bridegroom wouldn't do this. This was party time. Now, why? Well, Jesus explains what's going on in these two parables that begin in verse 21 by comparing himself to new fabric and new wine. I, I just love this. The God of the universe compares himself to cloth and wine. Now, note the emphasis on the word new in these two verses. But understand, do not misunderstand. Jesus is not contrasting the Old Testament with the New Testament. As if the New Testament is all about grace and the Old Testament is all about law. That's a gross misunderstanding, a misinterpretation of the Bible because there's lots of grace in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word hesed is a grace word and there's lots of commands in the New Testament. So the old here doesn't refer to the Old Testament. It refers to a perversion, a distortion of the Old Testament that turned Judaism into a system of do's and don'ts. A religion of merit. A, a salvation that you thought you could earn based on what you did or didn't do. And it fostered a, a, a purity based on isolation. And what Jesus has done in the previous account is the exact opposite of isolation. It's complete and total engagement. So what Jesus is saying in this contrast between the old and the new, these two parables, is that the old is over. I am the new fabric. I am the new wine. So while the point of this first account, 13, that begins in verse 13, goes through verse 17, is that Jesus is extraordinary because he offers extraordinary crazy grace. The point here, beginning in verse 18, the second account, is that Jesus is extraordinary because he makes everything new, crazy, extraordinary, new. This is the gospel. This is why Jesus will go to the cross. 
Salvation isn't something we can earn. It's something Christ earns for us by dying on the cross in our place for our sins. And when we trust Christ and say, I believe, God removes our sin from us, it's been placed on Jesus. And that is available to all who will believe, who like Levi, previous account, will admit their sin and trust in Jesus as their sin bearer. So it's the gospel, Christ crucified for sinners, that makes everything new. And this new wine, this gospel is the new covenant in Christ's blood that God now accepts us. I mean, think about this. Not based on our performance, but based on Christ's perfection. That God accepts us, not based on what we do or how we navigate, but based on what Christ has already done and how he has navigated the terrain for us. The law, therefore, the commands of God point to righteousness. That's what it looks like. But the law can't produce it. The law shows us what godliness is. But it can't make us godly. It informs us of our sin by revealing our deficiency. Levi got that. But the law alone can never transform the sinner. Only Christ, only the gospel can do that. So the gospel Jesus is announcing in these parables is a whole new order. It's a whole new reality. It's a whole new thing that God is doing in his son. Now let me clarify. Again, I don't want you to misunderstand. This gospel, this new saving reality isn't a freedom from pain. It is not a freedom from suffering. It is not a freedom from loss. It is not a freedom from bad things happening to you. It is a freedom from bitterness, anger, and hopelessness when they happen. Because your hope isn't in you or what you must do or your situation or the people around you. Your hope is in what Jesus has done for you and who he is for you. So the gospel means everything we need, we have in Jesus. Everything we need. Uh, what I mean by that is all the approval we long for, the significance, the purpose, the meaning, all the, the, the security and, and comfort and, and, and protection, all the rescue we know we need, all of this that we long for is available to us in Jesus. Jesus is saying, I make everything new, starting with you. Everything new. So Jesus and his grace, it's the most amazing thing that has ever happened. It's the most amazing thing that will ever happen. It changes, properly understood, it changes everything you are, everything you do, and it even changes everything you have. It changes everything. It's exactly what you need 
to live the life God wants you to live. And Jesus in this grace is what we will celebrate throughout eternity. So Mark is telling us Jesus is extraordinary because his grace is crazy. And he makes everything crazy new. And it's ours. It's yours. It's your neighbors. It's your co-workers. It's your family members. It's the people across the street, the people you really don't like, the people that irritate you. It's theirs for the believing. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can celebrate Jesus. We thank you for the grace you have given us, the grace you have shown us, the grace that is ours in Jesus. And so, Father, as as we conclude this service, as we sing, and then as we pray, God, tie a bow around these truths. Make them real in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.